Hi, this is Ben Lowell, and welcome to Back to the Bible Canada with Dr. John Newfeld. Today, we continue our series in the book of Romans, Lifestyle of the Gospel, with a message titled, Transformed Thinking and Community. So let's turn in our Bibles to Romans chapter 12, verses 3 to 6, as we join Dr. Newfeld now. I'm reading Romans 12, 3 to 6. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them, if prophecy in proportion to our faith. The story is told of a church service. The offering plate was coming down the row, and a little girl was sitting at the aisle, and she, she was the last to receive it. And it came to her, and she took the plate and put it on the floor, and then she stood in the middle of it. When the usher asked her what she was doing, she said, Well, in Sunday school, I learned that I was supposed to give myself to God. Well, she did just that. She put herself in the offering plate. Well, that's the theme of our new series. We've called this series The Lifestyle of the Gospel. And as we have seen, Christian lifestyle does not begin with what we can and can't do. Christian lifestyle is not a recital of the rules. It's not about the food we eat or the clothes we wear. Christian lifestyle begins with what we believe and and what we know to be true. And then in response to the mercies of God, we present our bodies to Him as a living sacrifice. And in Romans 12, 1-2, we learned that the place of beginning the Christian lifestyle is learning about God's grace and and fostering an overwhelming sense of, of gratefulness to God. That gratefulness leads to a response of of presenting our bodies to him as a living sacrifice, or as that little girl taught us, giving ourselves to God. We achieve this mindset by a complete transformation in our thinking. How are we to start thinking about sacrifice, and, and what exactly are we talking about when we talk about presenting our bodies as a living sacrifice? And, you know, someone might say, I think I understand the concept, I think of, I understand following Christ regardless of the cost, but but I need to get down to some specifics. Can you help me to get as practical as we can? Can you spell out some of the details and, and how do we do that? Well, let's remind ourselves of Romans 12, 1 to 2. It said, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. And so we saw that the beginning of a Christian lifestyle is the complete transformation of our thinking. And then when we face the decisions that we must make in this life, from a new way of thinking based on Scripture, we seize on what is good and what is perfect and so forth. Well, let's move on to today's text. So again, Romans 12, 3. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. So what does transformed thinking look like? I mean, on a most practical level? Well, if my life 
in Christ changes my perspective, where does that begin? And Paul's answer is that transformed thinking leads to three very practical outcomes. And the first outcome is that transformed thinking leads to a humble self-assessment. Now, I'll add to that that this self-assessment is necessary if we are to live in community with each other. But but I'm going to get to that, so hang on to that thought. So before I do, can you admit that this humble way of thinking sounds strange? Listen to verse 3 again. Not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think. Now, in our culture, or at least so it seems to me, we teach that we're to think very highly of ourselves. When we tell people, you've got to start believing in yourself. I mean, you've got to get confidence in yourself in order to get ahead. You've got to concentrate on your successes, not your failures. You know, so much has been written encouraging people to, to have a healthy self-esteem. And we're told that the number one reason that we don't succeed or that we don't live joyfully, it's because of a poor self-image. Be that poor image, the image of our bodies, of our abilities, or how other people perceive us. But if we begin to view ourselves highly, at least so we're told, we can achieve great things. Now, it is true that you and I have innate worth. You're created in the image of God. God created you with, with intellect, with innate abilities, and with a capacity to create, to accomplish. We do need to begin to thank God for how he made us. Or as one author said, God, God don't make junk. Well, find it well. But what I think has happened is, is that we've moved from a thankfulness for how God has created us to self-obsession. And so we begin to repeat to ourselves, you know, I am special. You know, it wasn't that long ago when pop psychologists were encouraging people to give themselves self-hugs. In a recent survey of students' math skills, you know, American students were pitted against students from from numerous countries around the world, and it was found that American students rated their own abilities as the highest in the world, and yet their test scores were rated in the bottom half of the class. But that's the spirit of the age. It always says, I'm the greatest, I'm the best, even when it's an illusion. You know, I think the obsession with self-esteem has only made matters worse. We've become self-focused, self-directed, self-inflated. As Jackie Mason once said, I like talking to myself because I like dealing with a better class of people. (laughs) You know, in the latter part of verse 3, Paul says that we are to think with sober judgment. And then he says, each according to the measure of faith God has assigned. You know, at first glance, you might read this and think each person has been given some measure or quantity of faith. So, you know, we need to evaluate ourselves according to the amount of faith that we have. You know, but if that's what Paul intended to say, what would that mean? I mean, practically. I mean, you see, uh, that would be hard to understand. But I think that Paul is saying something quite the opposite. In this passage, we're not to judge how much faith we have. Rather, the faith or our faith is itself the measure by which we judge ourselves. So what is it that we learn from faith? Well, we learn that we were created in God's image, but we also learn that we're fallen. We learn that all our abilities come from God. We learn that God gets credit for everything and we don't. And once we understand that whatever we've accomplished or whatever abilities we have or our looks or or our intellect or what have you, well, it's all a gift from God. How can we lay claim to that which we didn't produce? Everything is from God. 
See, once we allow that kind of faith to shape our thinking, well, as Paul says, we begin to think of ourselves with sober judgment. The word sober means sensible or even moderate. In other words, having been measured against the standard of the Christian faith, well, I come to see myself as a redeemed sinner who is a recipient of grace. I find that I'm owed nothing but have been given everything. That leads to sober judgment. Now, having established that basic rule for the Christian lifestyle, Paul next moves to his conclusion. The humble man or the humble woman lives life in the community of God's people. Let's read on Romans 12, 4-5. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ and individually members one of another. Now again, this is a very different way of thinking than that which is common in our culture. Or at least in our culture, we highly prize individuality rather than living in community with its demands that we limit our freedom for the good of others. Now, I find that one of the key reasons people withhold from, from living life in community is because they don't see the value of it. I mean, can it be that we're not seeing the value of our brothers and sisters, and therefore we neglect our duty of spending time with them? You know, is our problem that we overvalue ourselves and we undervalue them? See, there are three reasons why we live life in community. The first is the unity of God's people. We're one body, says Paul. We belong to each other. The second reason we live in community is that the God who fashions every single snowflake to have a unique pattern has done so with us. God has assigned to each one of us a unique function that he intends for us to play in the body. Paul says we don't all have the same function. God has so made each of us distinctively so that there is something unique that he intends every believer to contribute to his church. If you withhold, you rob the body. And the third reason we live in community is for our mutuality. Paul says that we're individually members of one another. We actually belong to each other and we desperately need one another. For many reasons, this has been a challenging year, but a year where God has once again proven himself faithful in providing for the needs of this ministry and have allowed Back to the Bible Canada to not only sustain our Bible teaching and engagement efforts, but to expand those efforts through new mediums and into new locations across Canada and in fact around the world. Your faithfulness has made this ministry possible. And our prayer is that you will continue to stand with us in support of this ministry for 2022. Your financial gifts are more than kindness. They are a participation in seeding God's word and a trust in kingdom work. The ministry target this year is to raise $490,000 during the month of December. This is a significant goal, but a necessary one. So please join us in this effort by sending your year-end gift by midnight of December 31st. Call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca. Our passage says of believers that we are members of one another. And Paul clarifies that concept in 1 Corinthians 12, 21, where he says, The eye cannot say to the hand, 
I have no need of you. Nor again the head to the feet, I have no need of you. You know, is it possible that we don't yet see how we need each other? I mean, how many things are lacking that can only be supplied by other believers? And what you lack must be supplied in relationship to them. See, it's essential whether in a small group of believers who meet for Bible study and prayer, or in some form of service groups, or perhaps it's a group that meets together to visit the elderly or the shut-ins, or a group that, that meets to serve coffee after worship, or any group that serves together, that we Christians must learn to live life together. We're called upon to share life and faith and struggle and sorrow, joy, prayer, and grow together in our study of God's Word. We're called to live in such a way that we share experiences with one another. The world may glorify rugged independence, but we, we have come to know that we are a body and that we have a new view of ourselves and a new view of others. Now, that view of things leads to certain outcomes. And the first outcome is a humble view of ourselves. The second is that life is lived in community. And the third is that life is lived in service to others. You know, one of the marks of the renewed mind is the realization that we have been called to be servants. And it's here where all believers must, as a part of basic discipleship, learn to use spiritual gifts. I'm reading Romans 12, 6a having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. And the idea here is that our gifts are distributed by God's grace. That means first, that God gives each believer the gifts that God desires that they should have. And second, each believer should view the gifts they have as a reason to be profoundly grateful. For God has chosen our gifts uniquely for every single one of us. He who knows what is best for us and, and for those around us has in infinite wisdom arranged in his perfection the unique combination of gifts that has been given. You know, how many of us spend our time wishing that we had someone else's gifts rather than our own? You know, we're like the duck who wishes he could run like a rabbit or the rabbit who wishes he could swim like a duck, not realizing that God has gifted you exactly as he did for both your own good and, and for the good of others. You never get joy until you're, you're thankful for your gifts. And so the Bible says, having received the gifts you have, well, let's use them. Start, start serving others. In the context of a life lived in community, use them in the unique way that only you can. Now, the rest of our passage, and Paul then gives seven gifts that relate directly to the functioning of the church. Now, it is God's will that we find our gifts and use them, but then, in order to help us do that, Paul gives us seven examples of spiritual gifts. So, we're only going to look at the first one. That's in verse 6. If prophecy in proportion to our faith. It is, at least in my way of thinking, rather fascinating that of all the gifts that Paul could have mentioned first, he begins with the gift of prophecy. And, and I wonder why. It would seem that in the New Testament, there are two ways of thinking about prophecy. In Ephesians 2, verse 20, we're told that, that the church itself is built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So here we see that the church has a foundation. And look, when you build a building, you only lay the foundation once. The truth of Jesus Christ and the message given to the church, well, it's the never-changing foundation of the church. See, our Bible never changes. The truths that we believe in our faith, well, they never change. 
The object of our faith, who is Jesus, never changes. The Bible is therefore the message of the apostles and the prophets. But remember that I said there are two ways of thinking about prophets in the New Testament. The first way is to think about a gift that was given by some to write our Bible. But we find a different kind of usage of prophecy in the early church. In Acts 13 verse 1, we read that there were prophets and teachers in the church in Antioch. And then, out of the mouths of those prophets, they call Paul and Barnabas out to the work of missions. That's to say, some prophets, not the prophets who wrote the Bible, but other prophets said, you know, hey, God is calling Paul and Barnabas to become our church missionaries. Let me give another example of that kind of prophecy, a prophecy that does not write scripture. In Acts 11, we read about a prophet named Agabus. He foretold a famine in Jerusalem. And it's this that allowed the church to prepare, to send money, to help Christians in Jerusalem. And in Acts 21, we meet that same Agabus again, and there he foretells that Paul is going to be bound and imprisoned when he goes to Jerusalem. Now, how was Agabus, who was a prophet, different from Paul, who was also a prophet? And the answer is that Agabus was not charged with laying the foundation of the church or with giving those once-for-all truths that established the universal church. Instead, Agabus received a revelation from God that was about something very specific and something, listen, very time-bound, something that's related only to a local situation. Agabus is not declaring what I call those supracultural truths, that is, truths given to all people at all times. Instead, his is what I like to call a local truth. It's intended only for a unique situation, and it has nothing at all to do with, with other people at other times. Now, in Romans 12, 6, when speaking about spiritual gifts, Paul is speaking about the Agabus kind of prophecy. At least that's the way I see it. Let me try to illustrate this. In Acts 21, verse 4, Paul is in Tyre, and some prophets there are urging him not to go to Jerusalem. Well, that was because Agabus has already said that he would suffer in Jerusalem. But these prophets were wrong. Well, they're right when they prophesied that, well, that sufferings awaited for the apostle Paul, but they were wrong in their interpretation of that fact. Instead of interpreting the sufferings that lay ahead of Paul as, as a charge that, hey, Paul, you better prepare yourself spiritually. Rather, these prophets blew it. They thought that Paul should try to avoid sufferings rather than prepare himself for them. Well, here's the point I'm trying to make. The gift of time-bound prophecy was never meant to function by itself. Time-bound prophets should not think more highly of themselves than they ought. After all, they're not teachers of doctrine. Time-bound prophets need teachers to set them straight. They should not think more highly of themselves than they ought if they are corrected and supported by other members of the body, their gift is highly prized. If they function on their own, their gift is useless. Now, in the case of Paul's suffering, we know that it was God's plan that Paul should suffer, so that Paul, a prisoner, would share the gospel of Jesus with both the Roman imperial guard and with Caesar's tribunal. It was all for the glory of God. Agabus didn't know that. All he knew was that Paul was going to suffer. 
And the Christian prophets in the city of Tyre, well, they, they thought that the prospect of suffering, well, they thought that Paul should avoid it. And this is why prophets must not function outside of a local church, nor must their word be considered final. Instead, it's the scripture, it's scripture alone, that's final. That's why preachers and teachers have a higher office than theirs. And I think that's Paul's point. You all need the body. If a man or a woman has a gift of prophecy and then begins to use that gift and is not connected to the whole body, Bible teachers weigh out what is said against the full counsel of God, well, that prophet is in trouble. We need community where all the gifts of the Spirit are in operation. And if that's true with a gift like prophecy, is it not also true of all the other gifts as well? You see, whenever a gift functions outside the context of the community of God's people, that gift fails. Now, in the rest of this passage, Paul has so much more to say about spiritual gifts, as well as the love that must be shown for one another, or I might say, the love in which the spiritual gifts must function. But all of it is premised on what he's already taught. We're not to think more highly of ourselves than we ought. We must prefer one another. We must long for community. We must live the Christian lifestyle communally. You know, so often spiritual gifts are viewed as individualistic endowments rather than a commodity given by the Holy Spirit that allows the Christian community to flourish. See, if we want to learn the Christian lifestyle, we must begin by living a life within the church, the family that is the body of Christ. John, I'm going to go way back in your sermon, way back in your message, where you talked about this girl (laughs) that stood in the offering plate, and she said she'd learned that she was supposed to give herself completely to God. I mean, does that not say it all? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, I can't even say for certain that actually happened, right? (laughs) (laughs) I read about it. I didn't see it. So there's that, right? But it is true that we are to offer ourselves fully to God. And, uh, you know, that is the heart of transformed thinking that I am to say to the Lord, what I have is yours. And and all of Christian life follows from that. I love the way, however, this passage takes us, you know, from that statement to immediately incorporating us into the body of Christ. Uh, You know, humble thinking means that I stop thinking about myself first, but I start thinking about my brother and sister first and and how I can minister to them. So, you know, Paul is moving us very, very quickly from, you know, the individual to a member of the body of Christ living together as a church. That's what's crucial here. Thanks so much, John. And remember to join us as we continue our series tomorrow in the book of Romans, right here on Back to the Bible Canada, where we teach the Bible. The Advent season is a special time of year, but it can get lost in the bright lights of the Christmas season. This month, join Dr. John Newfeld and special musical guest Brian Dirksen, the Arias, and the Pilkey sisters as they walk us through the weeks of Advent, preparing our hearts for the celebration of Jesus' birth with an Advent Celebration video series. An Advent Celebration can be viewed online at backtothebible.ca or on our Back to the Bible Canada YouTube channel. And together, let's pray for opportunities to be a messenger of joy in challenging days. Share the good news to those in need of renewed hope. 
For more information, call us at 1-800-663-2425 or visit backtothebible.ca.